0: Heavenly Father, we're grateful that we can come together as your people on this day and hear from your word and gather around your table as your people. Purchased, redeemed because of what you've done for us on the cross. And we pray that you would give us new eyes to see this once again a familiar story, but a transforming one if we'll give ourselves to it. So take our minds now and think through them. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own, and take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray, amen. Amen. Please be seated. It came out in 1983, and it was the perfect pump song for squats for my football team. All right? All right? John Mellencamp. John Mellencamp. He changed his name to Cougar because Mellencamp wasn't cool. He changed it later back to Mellencamp because Mellencamp is kind of cool. All right? And so you got all these kids in four stations doing squats in the song. You know, it's great. It's pumping them up. These guys are working hard. And as they racked it, you'd have all these 17 and 18-year-olds singing along. Now, I'm the authority in the room and they're all singing, I fight authority, authority always wins. And I said, that's right. (laughs) I fight authority, authority always wins. I've been doing it since I was a kid, but I always come out grinning. I fight authority and authority always wins. And the video is kind of hilarious. Because Mellencamp's, you know, dressed like a rocker, and this box is p- p- pummeling him p- the whole time. Because he's fighting authority, and authority always wins. I share that with you, because this text today is all about the authority of our King Jesus in his kingdom. Remember, two weeks ago, the kingdom of heaven is here. Turn around and believe the good news that's the message that he and now four disciples are going to carry to the world going forward and yet we live in a world sadly which doesn't recognize that authority and it's worse today than it was in 1983 you know you hear these phrases oh you do you not in God's kingdom we live under authority and I do it it's would have me live his life because under his banner, I have perfect freedom, right? And so with that ringing in our hearts, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the back of the bulletin, uh, where the passage on your device, because we're going to see some profound teachings in Jesus today. Because when Jesus preached, it was one with authority and is with passion. Jesus' passion fired his message. So intense was his feeling that he wept over the impenitent city of Jerusalem. Because Jesus was never boring. He was infused with a passionate zeal because what he had to communicate was because he cared for people. This does not mean that he was a shouter preacher. I'm sure he did raise his voice on an occasion. But that said, there was always an intense feeling in what he proclaimed. Jesus was truly the most passionate human who ever walked the face of our planet. He knew what was in the heart of humans, and he knew that the eternal issues rested in what they believed and how they lived. He was supremely passionate, and this is why he was so supremely successful in his preaching ministry as he brought forth the good news of turn around and believe. This is also why the four fishermen who were with him at this time followed him and became fishers of men, and they transformed the world because of their ministry. So what we're going to see is what real authority looks like this morning. Because what you see is the authority of his preaching and the authority of his power. First, the authority of his marvelous preaching. Verse 21 and 22, we see in this text before us, with those four disciples in tow, Jesus intensified his ministry, and what we have here is the Apostle Peter's account, eyewitness account, as given to Mark. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Capernaum was a small town on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, about two miles from where the Jordan entered into the lake. If you were to visit Capernaum today, you would notice ancient ruins of a synagogue, second century synagogue that was built probably on the synagogue that's referred to here in Mark. Whatever the case, The congregation in Jesus was made up like normal folk, just like we are. Fishermen, merchants, craftsmen, educated, less educated, laborers, and and all the women. They participated in the praises, the readings, the blessings, the prayers, the singing. And they eagerly awaited this day the preaching from the Law and the Prophets that this Nazarene guy who had caused such a commotion, in the countryside and they were not disappointed verse 22 they were astonished at his teaching that word astonished is literally translated to strike with panic or shock it means it blew them away literally Barclay renders that they're preaching they were left thunderstruck Jesus' preaching carried a powerful punch. He was so real, so true, so utterly, passionately sincere. But as important as those factors were, the responsibility for his success in preaching was his word. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The scribes, who were largely Pharisees, they were in bondage to the quotation marks. Rabbi Hillel says this. Rabbi Gamaliel says this. Rabbi Eliezer says this. It was all second-hand theology. It was not unique. And such preaching becomes petty, legalistic, no spontaneity, and absolutely no joy whatsoever. But when Jesus spoke, it was the very opposite. There were no quotation marks. You know Jesus' style. He would say, you heard it said, but I say. He proclaimed God's word. He didn't talk about God's word. He was God's word, embodied teaching God's word to the people. It was clear, succinct as all the great preachers have been and ever will be. He did not say, I'm the eschatological manifestation of the ground of your being. <laughs> no. The great preacher Harry Ironside one time was shaking hands out the door after the congregation was leaving his church. And Ironside replied, he, he, the man said, I, I uh, How did you feel about, what did you think about the service? And the guy said, oh, I love the service. What did you think of the preacher and the sermon? He goes, I don't think you're a very good preacher. He said, well, what what about my preaching brought you to that conclusion? He said, I understood everything. (laughs) That was a confession of one of the great reasons for Ironside's greatness, quite frankly. See, when Jesus preached the word, it was clear, painfully direct in its application. And we see this again and again and again, and we're going to see it again and again and again all the way into Jude. The conclusion there Capernaum was, his he taught them as one who had authority. I wonder what would have been our conclusion had we been there that day. We would, we would, ha- would we have been blown away? Thunderstruck. What a lesson for these new disciples, huh? To be sure, they did not sit down and do sermon review with Jesus. They knew he was genuine. They knew he passionately cared. They saw how he handled God's word and preached it clearly. And as they ministered in the name and example of Jesus, they would Experience the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit as they proclaimed the same message to turn around and believe this good news. Donald Gray Barnhouse, the great preacher of the 20th century at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, he uh, was riding with a friend in the car around the Philadelphia area, and the guy asked him, Dr. Barnhouse, what's, what's your favorite symphony? And he said, Brahms First." Brahms first. And the guy said, I, I, I don't know that one. How does it go? So Barnhouse began to whistle the main theme of the symphony. And it suddenly dawned on Bar- Bar- Dr. Barnhouse, this is kind of ridiculous, to whistle a symphony, to communicate that great musical competition composition with my weak whistle. But by the wonder of the human brain, my weak whistle changed my friend's mind into the strings and percussion and brass of the full symphony orchestra. Then Dr. Barnhouse applied that to his preaching and teaching ministry. He said, every time I stand up to teach the Bible, I'm overcome how ridiculous it is that I should be trying to communicate God's word to this great congregation. It would be hopeless except for one thing the Holy Spirit in me, teaching through me. He is also in the men and women in my congregation who are listening. So he turns my weak little whistle into the full symphony of God's revelation in their minds and lives. Brothers and sisters, if we want to communicate this good news, communicate in our walk and talk, God's authority must be absolute in our lives. He's our king. We are not. He's on the throne. We are not. We need not so much possess the message, but rather let the message possess us. We need not be just a professor of faith. We are a possessor of faith who profess it. If we want people to see that this is real, we need to be passionate about our walk with Christ together and like him. Ministers, stick our necks out in the community and ask questions just like Jesus did. Questions like, what do you mean by that? How did you reach that conclusion? And listen. Listen to people's responses so that we can respond with another question to help them see eh, maybe what they believe isn't quite as it is. And then on a rare occasion we can speak the word so clearly and share the good news with them. We call that gardening. Because <laughs> that's what our ministry is in our culture. In a post-truth culture and we're going to have a workshop later on in February about it. How how can we minister in a post-truth world? Because it's changed. In the last five years it's changed. So we got to change with it. But that's as we live under Christ's authority, under his marvelous preaching ministry. Secondly, we see Christ's marvelous power in verses 23 to 26. We don't don't know when the opposition came, but as the people sat, blown away by Jesus' preaching, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the holy one of God. You see, the light of Jesus' teaching was too much for the evil of a demonized life. Just like insects when you pull up a rock in a sunny day in the summer start to scatter. The evil spirits who love darkness recoil from the light. It's very possible to recognize Jesus for who he is and hate him all the more because that's what's happening here this man wanted nothing to do with Jesus Christ the demon's shriek was full of malevolent aggression in his opening burst what have you to do with us was a common Old Testament formula that was roughly equivalent to do you have no business to do with us yet the evil spirit wanted Jesus just to go away and so the next phrase stated as a question was really a defiant assertion. You have come to destroy us. Exclamation mark, really. The demon realized the menace of Christ and cried with its distinctive dread, because he knew the jig is up. He's done for. And he just wanted Jesus to disappear. So he makes one last cry, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, because in the ancient world, the idea was widespread at that time. The exact knowledge of another's name brought mastery and control over him. This was an ill-informed attempt to control Christ. From this encounter, we know without a doubt that whatever authority Of Christ, the Son of God, is invoked in preaching or teaching, there will always be a violent confrontation with evil spirits who possess men's souls and rule their lives. There will always be some who object, who oppose. This is what Billy Graham experienced, this is what Greg Laurie, who continues to preach around the world, experienced. As long as they lift Jesus Christ high, the foul creatures under the stones don't like to be disturbed. I especially want us to see that this man was completely under the sway of evil, brothers and sisters. His personality had been damaged to the point that the demonic spirit usurped the core of his being, the core of his self even utilize his voice, because Satan always tries to imitate God. Christ came to earth in human flesh, but now dwells within us as we have trusted in him. And Satan fabricates incarnations through his spirits. And this man, literally lost soul, is a kennel for a Barrage of evil spirits he literally was in an unclean spirit in the greek verse 23 the the moral nature of the unclean spirit with his was awful so fully was he under the command of this evil that he would renounce christ and he would finally say with one last barrage You have no business with me yet. Go away. Moreover, all his religious efforts that this man had previously done, he's in the synagogue, had done him no good. He was absolutely hopeless. This does not mean that he was as morally evil as he could have been, but this does mean he was completely under Satan's power. So, Jesus had been challenged. Can you picture this scene? They're in Capernaum, by the Sea of Galilee. I'm sure there was a moment of silence where you could hear a pin drop. You probably heard the lapping of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus just responds, Be silent. Which literally means, be muzzled. Come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. This poor man who had been racked with violent convulsions before the horror-stricken congregation, the demon departed with inarticulate howling and was forbidden to say another word. Silence! Come out of him. And now this man arose to a life of wholeness, joy, and peace. You see, friends, there's hope for the worst of us. <laughs> you or someone you know may have the hardest of heart in our land, but there's no such person or individual who's a God-forsaken person. To you and everyone else, that heart may feel impenetrable, irredeemable, and impossible, but chances are the hardest heart that you know is a very religious heart. They don't know it. They may have the proudest will, bloodied, unbowed, unbroken, condemned. They, since they were little, have been fighting authority, and even though authority always wins, They keep fighting it. But yet there's a great hope for them. Because Christ can free them and you from all evil that has you in bondage. What we learn from Christ's action is that his gospel of love and power is for everyone. From the best of us to the worst of us. Do you think yourself least likely to be the one who changes? Know this, Jesus rejoices to change your life with a word. And he will, if you come to him. Will you? The text considered in this chapter shows four new disciples that are fishermen, that are now fishers of men, under the authority of Christ. These four recruits saw the people blown away by Jesus' teaching. And as time progressed, they put this authority to use in their lives, for at Pentecost, Jesus used Peter mightily, and thousands were changed, instantly. These four recruits saw this demoniac healed and came to see that he was the symbol of the great things of God that God would do through their ministry. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, we're the church, we're the body of Christ which by definition has to do with those who have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Our lives are to speak God's word authoritatively. Not only that, but as the Church of Christ, we're to be involved in the others being delivered from the bondage of their sin. Christ calls his fellow ministers to minister with his authority. Matthew 28, you know it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given under me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Always to the end of the age. And not only that, we're to proclaim, and we are to pray over the sick. Last week, our brother Joe shared, I think, God just got tired of hearing us pray for him and said, all right, I'll heal him. (laughs) Here he is. My friends, God hears our prayers. And through his body, some might come to faith in Christ because we're praying for them. Because Jesus is our king. Unlike the king of England. Now, I'm I'm not a royal file my dad always taught us we're Americans for a reason you know we have no king but we kind of like you know Elizabeth was great Charles men <laughs> but you know he, he is if you were to go meet him he's larger than life right he has his own palace even several but there's one problem he has no palace he has no say in Parliament. He can't veto any legislation. His position in the country is one of figurehead and courtesy. What England does to the king, many in the church do to Christ. We give him verbal recognition, we encase him in a beautiful palace called the church. We got people coming to pay him homage, but when it comes to our decision making, We don't need him. We got this. We acknowledge his position without giving the credit for the power that accompanies it. May it not be so with us. The whole gospel of Mark is laying out that the kingdom has come. Turn around. Believe the good news. Follow him. And let's follow him under his authority so that we might see mighty works done in our lives and through our lives, together as his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that authority which Christ gives his people. And that you, Lord, love us with this everlasting love. And if there be any one of us who have not relinquished full authority, I pray that we would hand it over. Just give it to you, Lord. So that we might walk in the perfect freedom of of such a life brings as your people. Lord, we're your adopted children. May we live under that authority so that you might be glorified in our lives and a great encouragement to one another as we do so. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. (laughs)